good morning. Are I doing all right? Well, we're going to jump into week two. Uh, I want to welcome everybody uh, streaming online, everybody um, on our Thursday night group that meets in Burleson, our Friday morning group in Granbury, our Sunday night group in uh, Fort Worth, and then we've got a group in Eastland. We've got, um, believe it or not, a group in Uganda who streams with us. Uh, so welcome to everybody who's uh, streaming online. We're, we're glad you're with us. Um, just so you know, uh, you may not be aware of this, but we've got eight different sessions of Band of Brothers going on each week now. So we have Tuesday morning, this group, and Tuesday night, and then we have Wednesday morning out in Burleson, and then we have a Thursday night in Burleson. We have a Thursday morning, Thursday night in Fort Worth, and then we have a Friday morning group in Granbury, and then we have a Sunday night group that meets in Fort Worth. So we have eight different groups, and um, the numbers are great. We've uh, got, we're really pre-COVID numbers now. We, every, everybody's coming back, so I'm glad you're here, glad, glad you're part of this study, and we're going to jump into week two this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at the six days of creation. So w- would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that... Um, You've given us this book, that you've allowed us to get a glimpse into how it all began. And and Father, there's a lot of things you don't answer. There's a lot of questions we bring that uh, we don't get the answers to. And and yet, we are told the things we need to know about you, about man, about sin, about the world, about the universe, and, and about your plans for redemption. And so, as we Go through these verses today, would you open our hearts and our minds to see what you would have us to see, hear what you would have us to hear, and that, Father, we would walk away encouraged because of the greatness of you. So thank you for these men, thank you for the breakfast, and may you uh, guide us and direct us in the time we have together, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're going to dig into these uh, opening verses. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. And we saw that in the beginning, God created what? He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we know. Uh, That term is what's called a mirrorism. It's it's meant to encompass everything, heaven and earth. Uh, The stars, the galaxies, outer space, the sun, the moon, and then also the earth where we live. So that's what he did. He created all those things. And it says that the earth was without form and void. It was... Um, uninhabitable at this point. No one was living there and no one could live there because it was a work in process. And it was dark. There was a darkness over the face of the deep. That word deep is really interesting. In in the Hebrew, it's often referred to as the oceans. But at this point, there don't appear to be oceans yet. Uh, So it could refer to just the vacuum of space it could refer to a body of water in some form, some fashion. We're not really sure exactly what it means, and there's a lot of speculation. And we're going to talk about some of this speculation today, uh, theories and interpretations of the Genesis account. And one of the things I want us to be real careful of as we go through Genesis, and we began this last week, is I want us to look at the book through the lens of the Israelites. And so that's going to be really important that we don't bring to it our scientific understanding 
and what we know now, 21st century, and what they didn't know. And I'm not telling you to put your mind to rest and, you know, disengage your brain. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that we have to understand, as we saw last week, this was written by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the people of Israel. And it was written at a particular period in time. And we need to read it through that lens, and we need to hear it as they heard it. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going to go. So the earth was without form. It was void. It was empty. There's nobody living on the earth. The earth is not yet formed in the way we know it now. There's this darkness hovering over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So God is beginning to do something in the beginning. So we're in the early stages of the creation story where God began to create. God invaded time and space, and he began to do something. And what these verses tell us is what God did. Verses 13, uh, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 31 are, here's what God did in a period of time. Now, there's a lot of argument about that period of time. Was it six days or was it six billion years? And again, we're going to try to understand this the way they would have understood it. How did they view what they were hearing? What is God doing? And it's interesting, if you look at the opening verses of chapter 1, over and over again, it says, and God said, and God said. It's repeated. It's, it's what's called a conjunctive verb. It, it's an, a, a verb that's meant to attach one thing to the next. It's a sequence of events that's taking place. It can, it can be translated as, and so, or then, then God th- did this, and then God did this, but it particularly says, and God said, and that's important because it's telling us that God is dictating something. He's declaring something to happen. It's this sequence of events called the creation. And most of us are pretty familiar with this information. We've studied it before. We've probably read Genesis before. We've heard sermons on Genesis before, and we're fairly familiar with the sequence, but I think there's more to it often than what we see or what we notice. And it's pretty important for us to understand that God has a plan, and that plan is perfect, and it's unrolling, unfolding in just the way He declared it to be. So we see in day one, we're going to look at this, that He creates light before He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, He creates what's called the expanse, or what we would know as the atmosphere. Then day three, He creates the land, along with the seas and the plants that exist on the land. Day four, he creates what are called the luminaries, or the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. And interestingly enough, he doesn't name them. He doesn't call them the sun, the moon, and the stars. We'll talk more about that in a second. Day five, he makes the birds and the fish to fill the sea and the atmosphere. And then day six, he's going to make the land animals, and he's going to make humans. We're going to stop at verse 25, We're only going to look at his creation of all things up until he makes man. And then we're going to cover man next week because man deserves to stand alone in terms of the creation. He's the apex of creation. He is the pinnacle of God's creative order. And so we'll look at that next week. So what's going on here? Creation is foundational. And we kind of touched on this last week that it's, it's the key to understanding everything we know. It's a doctrine of the Bible, okay? The the whole idea of the creation. The 
Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it this way. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making of all things of nothing. Uh, in the Latin, it's called ex nihilo. He, he created all things, everything that we can see, everything that we know about, and even those things we don't know about yet, galaxies we've never discovered yet, were all made out of nothing by God, by the word of his power. There's the emphasis, emphasis on, and God said, in the space of six days and all very good. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism written in the 1600s. That's what they believe. That's what we believe as a church. Uh, It's a foundational doctrine of the Bible. But here's something you may have never thought about before. There's a difference between the doctrine of creation and creationism. As soon as you put an ism on anything, um, it it can get a little squirrely, okay? It, It becomes the ideas of man and not necessarily the ideas of God. So we have to be real careful when we talk about creationism because it is a melting pot of different ideas and theories and interpretations of what happened in creation. Okay, so creation is a doctrine. It is what the Bible teaches us about the formation of the world. Creationism is an apologetic approach. It's a way of explaining what happened, okay? Two different things, and I don't want us to get them confused. One is based on an interpretation of the text, the Scripture. What does the Scripture say happened? The other one is basically, here's what we think happened based on a lot of other information, biblical, but also extra-biblical. Now, one of the things we know is that with the rise of evolution with the help of Darwin, and Darwin didn't invent the concept of evolution. It had been around for a long time. He just kind of consolidated it, and then he publicized it to a great degree. That idea had been around, and it began to influence the way the church interpreted Genesis. In other words, as they heard about the evolutionary process, as they heard about the age of the earth, as they heard about the idea that one species evolved into another species, they began to, in a sense, panic and go, what do we do with Genesis? And they began to interpret the Bible through the lens of science. I think we always need to keep the two firmly attached, but we need to be careful that we don't allow what we know about science to interpret the Bible. Why? Because science is constantly evolving itself. There are things that scientists know now that they didn't know 100 years ago. And there are things 100 years from now that will prove wrong what we think we know now. Science is a human process that is at its core flawed because we're human. We're fallen creatures. So we have to be careful how we treat the text. One is factual. Here's what happened according to God. The other one is theoretical. Evolution, to this day, is still a theory. It's even argued about by those who adhere to it. There's debates among evolutionists about the theory of evolution. And so we have to be careful how we take any of these scientific thoughts and apply them to Scripture. According to the Bible, the doctrine of creation is unchanging. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for interpretation. It's not up for me or you to decide this is what I think happened. This is what I think it says. Is what does the Bible say? The other one is open to reevaluation. 
It's always in the process of reevaluation. I have read so many books, guys, in preparation for this series written by believing Christians, but they all tend to differ on creationism. How did it happen? What was the process? And, and they write chapter after chapter after chapter, and in doing so, they almost ignore what happened and who did it. They, they spend so much time worrying about the length of the days, and, and, and we're going to talk about a few of these things this morning, the gap theory, and the, uh, it, it, you lose sight of what the text is trying to tell us. And again, I'm not telling you to poo-poo science and that, you know, None of these theories are correct or have any truth in them. That's not my point. My point is, what does the Bible say? What is God trying to t- teach us? One is foundational. It's a doctrine. It's a doctrine about how did everything we know come into existence. The other one is rather peripheral. It's interesting that all these books, they all essentially come to the same conclusion, we really don't know. And they all agree that we shouldn't be fighting among ourselves about things of which we really don't know. So in other words, if you think the earth is old, billions of years old, and someone else in the group at your table thinks it's a young earth, it doesn't change redemption. It, it doesn't change anything. There's no reason for us to be fighting with one another over these things. It's, it's, a, it's a peripheral issue, so to speak. But creation is foundational. It's key. Why is it key? Because it tells us that God made everything. It tells us who our God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us about sin. It tells us about everything that we need to know about. And so it's foundational. I love this from Kenneth Keithley. He says, our commitment to doctrine must be strong, but we hold to any particular apologetic approach much more loosely. So whatever you believe about the how of creation, how God did what he did, whether it was six literal 24-hour days or it was eons of time, hold on to that loosely because none of us know. Why don't we know? Because the text doesn't tell us. God doesn't spell it all out for us. And so we have to hold to those theories, those interpretations fairly loosely. But the key is, did creation take place? Yes. Is there a God? Yes. Why do we know there's a God? Because it says, in the beginning, God. God did something. God created something. So even within the Christian camp, there's arguments over how he did what he did. So there's theistic evolution. Now, I'm only going to touch the really the surface on these issues. And I've given you a document in that little flash drive. If you didn't get a flash drive, grab one because it's got 11 weeks worth of folders. And in each one of those folders, there are reading materials that go deeper into these topics. One of them in week one is the nine views of creation. And it's going to go into great, great detail about the the various views on creation that are out there. We're only going to touch on a few this morning. So theistic evolution, God is providentially operating according to the evolutionary process. This is kind of a hybrid, a blend of what evolutionists believe about the creation of the universe without God, and then what Christians have done to incorporate some of those beliefs with the Word of God. So it's kind of a hybrid of the two, and it's really close to what's called deism. All that simply means is 
it's a view of God that is somewhat distant, that God created, put all this stuff into the works, and then he kind of stood back and he let it just do its thing. And, and so in essence, he spun it up, and then he stood back and let evolution take its course. Um, and it took a lot of time for it to take its course. So there's this view of theistic evolution. God's involved, right? He's inserted himself into the process, but he's not intimately involved. The problem I have with that is that when you read the first chapter of Genesis, he's very intimately involved. He's going to say, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God formed, and God did this, and God created, and God fashioned. God's intimately involved. He didn't just spin it up and then stand back and watch it just kind of take its course. He created everything according to this theory, all the building blocks, the DNA, all the the protein molecules, everything needed for life, for existence of the universe, and then he just stood back and watched it happen. That's theistic evolution in a nutshell. And it basically tracks with naturalistic evolution, uh, materialistic evolution, which just simply means there is no God. The universe created itself. Matter creates matter. Um, so it's, it's an attempt by Christians, well-meaning Christians, to, to really reconcile what science has so-called discovered and what the Bible tells us. And you end up with this theistic evolution. There's the gap theory. This one's what I grew up on, and maybe you grew up on this. I, I grew up Southern Baptist, and this is what my dad taught about the book of Genesis, the gap theory. What's the gap theory? Well, it's based on the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, which we looked at last week. So what do they tell us? In the beginning, God, right? Well, the gap theory is based on the idea that there's a gap in those first two verses between verse 1 and verse 2. And, and once again, what's driving this theory, this interpretation? It's what do we do with what the science has seemed to have discovered about the age of the earth, for instance? What do we do with dinosaurs? What do we do with the ge geological strata? What do we do with the fact that there are, um, they've discovered fossils in various strata of clay and dirt and sediment. What do we do with all that? Well, the gap theory. So here's what they say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did something. He created something. He created the heavens, space, and earth, this planet. Then it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Something happened in the gap between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, again, this is what I grew up on. This is how my dad explained dinosaurs to me. This is how my dad explained a lot of things to me. And I never fully understood where he got it from or what it was based on, or did he get it from Scripture, or did he get it from something else? But this is what I was firmly taught. What happened between verse 1 and verse 2? Well, God created an original earth. In the beginning, God created, right? Heavens and earth. And then something happened. He put Satan in charge of it. We know from the Scriptures that Satan was called the angel of light. He was a created being, created by God, and God put him in charge of the earth according to this theory, this interpretation. Well, we know from Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, that Satan rebelled. And so they placed that event in the gap. 
God creates a heaven and earth. He puts Satan in charge of it. Satan in his pride decided he wants to be God and he rebels and he's cast out of heaven. And then as a result, God destroys the earth. And so what happens? The earth has to be remade new. James Montgomery Boyce describes it this way. He does not believe in this theory, but he describes it this way. As a result of which the earth became the formless, desolate mass, we discover it to be in Genesis 1-2. The earth continued like this for interdeterminate times in which the various rock strata developed. It was only at the end of this period that God intervened to bring new order out of the prevailing chaos. What's, What's going on here? This is their way of explaining what happened to the earth. Why was the earth formless and void? Now, I believe all that's telling me is that God was in the process of making something and it was not yet complete. What this camp believes is that, no, God created it, put Satan in charge of it, he rebelled, and so he, he God, destroyed the earth and left it in this formless, void, chaotic mess. So he has to recreate it. This is often called the recreation theory. God had to recreate what had been destroyed. Now, A.W. Pink, I I made a comment last week that I said, uh, there's very little that I've ever found with A.W. Pink that I disagree with. This I disagree with. Here's what he says. The unknown interval between the first two verses of Genesis 1 is wide enough to embrace all the prehistoric ages which may have elapsed, but all that took place from Genesis 1-3 onward transpired less than 6,000 years ago. So really all he's saying is, how do we figure out and how do we justify the age of the earth according to science? Well, there's a gap. And in that gap, and remember, in the gap, there's no text. In the gap, there's no verses. There's no word from God to describe this gap. It's inferred by humans. We infer into the gap between verse 1 and verse 2 this whole theory, this whole interpretation. And he's saying that in that time period, however long it was, millions if billions of years, that's where you end up with the geological strata that we see. But it begins to break down, in my opinion, when you read the text, when you go back and just see what do the Scriptures say. So, we have to wrestle with this. And I'm not going to tell you guys what to believe. I want you to wrestle with all these ideas. And that's why I've given you so many articles to read. Just wrestle with them. Think about it. But ultimately, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to what does the text say? What does it teach? And so this morning, what I want to look at is, is kind of the historic view of the six days of creation. Uh, What do they teach us? What did Moses write for the people of Israel to read? And again, I want us to read it through that lens. And, and all these different versions, there's, there's even different versions of the six days of creation. And it's amazing how much time we will spend trying to figure out what God, for whatever reason, decided not to tell us. So you end up with what's called old earth creationism. And again, this is influenced heavily by our desire to reconcile science with the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to be very careful in that process. So they hold to what's called the day-age theory. What's that? Well, in the opening verses of Genesis, and we're we're looking at them, there's the word day. And he's going to repeatedly say, and there was 
evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day. And the Hebrew, that word is yom. And almost everywhere in the Bible, the predominantly number of times it appears, it, it's referring to a 24-hour day. There are a few occasions where it can refer to a, a, a time of indeterminate length. But typically, it's a 24-hour day. So what they say, though, is that, no, these are not normal, necessarily 24-hour days. And they refer to Psalm 94. You may have heard this before. For you, a thousand years are as a passing day, yom as brief as a few night hours. And so they go to this text and they say, to God, one day is like a thousand years. Well, really what this passage is saying is that to God, God is not stuck in time. He stands outside of time. Time means nothing to God. God is eternal. This thing we're going through, our life is a blip on the radar screen to God. Time means nothing to him. That's all this is really telling us. It's not telling us that a a day is literally a thousand years or a billion years or a million years. But this is the verse they use. And then they go to 2 Peter where he quotes this verse. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. So what they do is they say, well, see, a day isn't necessarily 24 hours. And so these days could have been of any length of time. They could have taken eons of time. And so what old earth creationists teach is that the earth is approximately 13.7 billion years old. And so these days were very long days. You think your days are long? Think about this in the context of God's days. No wonder he had to rest on the seventh day. These are some long days going on. So these days are lengthy. the, The idea of Adam and Eve, they believe that they were created some 30,000 to 70,000 years ago. Now, is any of this in the text? No. It, it doesn't teach this. It doesn't tell us this. And so we have to be very careful what we do with it. Now, they don't believe in evolution. So unlike theist, theistic evolutionists, they don't believe in evolution. They embrace the historicity of the book of Genesis. They believe in a real Adam and Eve. They believe in a literal creation. But they've, they've played around with this idea of a day. Well, there's young earth creationism. Well, what do they believe? Well, kind of the opposite. They believe the text teaches a 24-hour literal day because the predominantly, predominant number of times it's used in the Scriptures, that's how it's used. It's a 24-hour day. So they put the age of the earth at anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Well, you can see how that flies in the face of science, right? That, that flies in the face of carbon dating. That flies in the face of the geological strata. That flies in the face of dinosaurs and when they lived and how they existed. So these guys are seen as Neanderthals and backwards and archaic and a little simple-minded, and, but there's some really solid theologians who are in this camp. So you got the old earth, the young earth, and they believe that God created the earth with age. What does that mean? It means that God created it just the way it looks, and it looks older than it is. Now, you can sit there and go, well, that, that's a mind blower. You know, you go to the Grand Canyon, you stand and you look over and you go, this took a long time to, to happen, right? This took millions of years of erosion for that massive thing to take place. 
what these guys are teaching and believe the Scriptures teach is that no, God created it that way. It doesn't mean there hasn't been erosion over time, but it's, it's that God created it with age. I, I read a guy the other day said that if, if you had been a lumberjack on the, the day that God created the trees and you had chopped down your first tree, there probably would have been rings that showed age, even though the tree had just been created. So God created with age. He creates Adam as a grown man. He was of age. He didn't have to grow up. So this is how they justify this much more reduced age of the earth. They explain the geological strata and the fact that you can find fossils of sea creatures on the top of mountains by virtue of the flood. Now, once again, where do they get this from? They get it partially from Scripture, but partially from speculation, from interpretation, trying to figure out what do we do with this story? How did God do it? And again, the emphasis is always seemingly on the how instead of the who and the why. What did he do? Who did it? And why did he do it? And that's where I tend to want to spend my time because I keep thinking about what did the Israels think about any of this? Remember, this book, like the other five books of the Pentateuch, was written for who? The Israelites. It was written as they were prepared, written for them to read before they went into the land of Canaan for the very first time, the land promised to them by God. And so it's a way of telling them about their God. Well, how would they have heard this story? How did they interpret the creation account? I don't believe that they sat around going, Okay, that's great, Moses, but where are the dinosaurs? Where did they exist? What about the geological strata? What about this? What about that? They, first of all, didn't know to ask those questions. I think I said this last week. You know, I discovered that the first, really the first fossils weren't found until the 1700s. So they didn't, they didn't know about fossils. They didn't think about fossils. So they weren't asking the same kind of questions. So I think they took it literally, not figuratively. I think when they heard 24-hour day, they, or a day, they heard 24-hour day. That's what they thought. They had no reason to think other than that. They didn't have any concept of these scientific facts like we have. And it doesn't mean they were morons. It doesn't mean that they were backwards. It just means that they were operating on what they had. And isn't it fascinating that God, who knows everything, chose not to tell them everything he knew? He didn't say, well, let me go into further detail. He takes three chapters to explain the most significant moment in human history, the creation of the universe and the earth and mankind. He doesn't go into great detail because he didn't think they needed it. So they didn't worry about the age of the earth. They weren't consumed about dinosaurs. They really had no concept of how great the universe was and how far it went. Let's face it, they didn't even know the earth wasn't, wasn't flat. And that lasted for centuries, right? So they were limited in what they knew. So they didn't sit around theorizing about, I wonder how he did it. Do you think it was a literal day? Ithmiel, do you think it was a literal day or you know, 24 hours? Or do you think? I think it was probably billions of years. They didn't sit around and have those conversations. But we do. We're obsessed with it. So listen to this from Victor Hamilton. This is a word from God addressed to a group of people who are surrounded by nations whose cosmology is informed by polytheism and mythology that flows out of that polytheism. What's he saying? 
Remember, I said this last week. These people are standing on the edge of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over into the land of Canaan, which is full of pagans who worship all kinds of gods. They've come out of Egypt where they worship Pharaoh as a god, a man. They worship the sun. They worship uh, crocodiles. They worship the Nile. They worship all kinds of gods. And so God is trying to tell them that none of that's true. There's one God, and he created everything. So much in Genesis 1 is patently anti-pagan. You know, we're, we don't consider ourselves pagan. We're not, we don't worship rocks and we don't worship idols. And, you know, now we have our own kind of idols, but we're not pagan. And so we have a hard time with this. But these people had come out of a pagan culture and they were getting ready to walk into one where everyone's pagan. And so God's trying to speak against that. The writer's concerns then were theological and historical. What happened? and why, and so what? What happened? Not how. It does tell us how, but it doesn't go into the details that you and I would like. And part of the reason we want those details is so that we don't feel like fools when talking to people who are evolutionists, or materialists, or atheists. We feel like we're kind of stupid. And so we feel this need to defend the Scriptures, and what we do oftentimes is we bring harm to the Scriptures because we try to add to it things the Scriptures don't tell us, and we have to be very careful. So bottom line is, what did God say? What does the Scriptures tell us? What did the Israelites hear when the text was read to them? So Moses pins it over a period of years. He collects it. It's, it's placed beside the Ark of the Covenant, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it was told to be kept for perpetuity. Go back and read it. Remember, don't forget. Why? Because it tells you about your God. So what did they hear when it was read? How did they understand these verses that we're going to look at this morning? What was the context? How did they take it? How did they hear it? Don MacArthur says, ultimately, the Jewish nation would understand a selected portion of world history and the inaugural background of their own history as a basis by which they would live in their new beginnings under Joshua's leadership in the land that had previously been promised to Abraham, their patriarchal forefather. He's just saying what I just said. They're standing on the edge of the river, getting ready to go into the land promised to Abraham. This will be your inheritance. This will be given to your descendants. They will live in the land. They will be fruitful and multiply. And God is revealing their history. How did you get to the border? And what are you going to do once you get in? Why did God create Canaan? Why did God create Eden? Why did God create Adam? Why did God create Eve? Why did God create the universe? Why did God create this planet for us, for them? So once again, we, we go back and we look and it says, and God said... Over and over again, nine different times, and God said, and I'm just going to blow through these. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God is telling them what happened and the order and the sequence of events. All the way down to verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. He's going to make the sun and the moon and the stars. And if you go on all the way through verse 25, it's going to continue to say, and God said, and God said, and God said, God is doing something. What is the text telling the Israelites? They serve a powerful God. 
Their God just speaks and things happen. Their God says something and it takes place. The six days of creation. He speaks, he commands, and it's so. Now, why would they need to hear that? Why would they need to know that about their God? Because he's about to tell them, all right, time to go. Time to go over the river. Time to go into the land. Time to start conquering the Canaanites, all those pagans. Yes, I know they're giants. I know they're bigger than you are. They're more powerful. But I say, go, go. The same God who said, and let there be light, and let there be sea creatures, and let there be this, and let there be that, is the same God who's going to tell them, and now it's time to go. Trust me. That's why they needed to hear this. He speaks, and it's so. He declares, he commands, and it happens. See, they're wrestling with just who this God really is. Is he big enough, great enough, powerful enough to help us do what we need to do? And that's why he begins the whole story with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God created. And how did he do it? By speaking. And he speaks this plan into existence. And there's an order, guys, to this plan. There's a sequence of events. God is doing things with a point in mind. It's not just haphazard. Well, I think today I feel like making fish. And tomorrow I may make birds. No, I think instead I'm going to make man. No, there's a sequence to what he does. There's a method to the seeming madness because it's a plan, and that plan has a purpose. See, it starts out formless and void. Now he's going to fill it. He's going to form it and fill it. And that's what these verses, verse really 3 through 25, tell us. Here's just an overview of what he does. And, and notice the, how they, they go with one another. Day 1 goes with day 4. Day 2 goes with day 5. Day 3 goes with day 6. It says that first he forms the light and the dark, not the sun, the moon, and the stars. He creates the concept, the idea of light and dark. We'll talk about this in a second. Day four, he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars that will provide over time light and dark. Day two, he makes the sea and the sky. Day five, he fills it. He forms it, he fills it. Day three, he creates the earth and he puts plants on the earth. And then day six, he puts the creatures who will live on that land, including man. So there's a method to the madness. There's a form and a function to it all. He's forming and filling. He's creating, and then he's populating. But there's an end in mind. See, he says the earth was formed and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's the condition until he starts to do something about it, and he's going to create light. This one has um, bogged down Christians for generations. Because he apparently makes light on day one, but he doesn't make the sun until day four. Well, what do, we, what do we know about light? Where do we get light from? Well, the sun. That's what we've always known. That's what we've always believed. Well, the Israelites believe that too. But here it's saying that, no, he makes light before he makes the sun, which tells us something about the sun. It's ultimately not the source of light. It produces light. But who gave it the power to do so? God. And who will one day remove that power? God. Because we know in the book of Revelation that in the end, when all is said and done, there will be no sun, moon, or stars because the light will come from God. 
So this idea of the sun being this permanent source of light for us, or we hope it's permanent, is telling us that, no, God made light before he ever made the sun. It's just a source of light. Just like when Moses came down off of the mountaintop and his face shone with the light of God, it eventually faded because he wasn't really the source of light. He was a reflection of God's light. I think that's all these verses are telling us is that God invades time. How? With the light of his glory. Think about this. If God is outside of time, and this is going to probably give you a headache this morning, but if God is timeless, he's outside of time, he's eternal, time means nothing to him. He actually creates time. He creates matter, he creates time, he creates space, he creates it all. Time didn't exist before this. So he makes time. Time exists for who? Us. It's a, it's a space in which we live. We live within time. And so what does God do? He invades time. How does he do that? With the light of his glory. See, it's interesting that the Jews over time would begin to understand that darkness is where evil takes place. They, they hated the dark. They loathed the dark. That's the reason they, they didn't like the sea because the sea was dark and foreboding and mysterious and no Jew wanted to die at sea. It, it represented Sheol, hell. And so this idea of darkness was known to them and light was good. You wanted to live in the light. You wanted to have light in your home. You feared the dark. And it, it, it's interesting that all evil takes place in the dark seemingly. That's why you tell your kids, nothing good happens after 10 come home. There's a curfew. We fear the dark naturally. Children fear the dark. Very few people have nightmares in the middle of the day, except associated with your work, your job. But most of your nightmares take place when? In the dark, at night. And so the Jews knew that. You see, that light didn't come from a physical source. Well, Ken, how do you explain that? I can't. He doesn't tell me. So I have to think that, well, it had to come from somewhere. If there's no sun yet, there's no moon, there's no planets, then where did this light come from? Well, I have to believe that it, it came from God. Here's what's interesting about the Israelites. They, they've been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years after having left Egypt. They're standing on the edge of the river. They're getting ready to go in. Well, how did they navigate from Egypt all the way to Canaan. They were led by a pillar of fire. What was that pillar of fire? It was God, the power, the presence of God. So this idea of light before sun, light without the sun, light without really a product to emanate it from, they really didn't have trouble with that, right? Because they had seen it. They had seen this light just appear and lead them all throughout the night. It's the light that led them across the Red Sea. It's the light that had stood between them and the nation of Egypt as they bore down on them and keep them, kept them from attacking and kept them safe as they crossed over on dry land to the other side. So they didn't have a problem with a light source other than the sun. But here's what's really interesting, is that for 400 years, they had been living in Egypt. And in Egypt, they worshiped Ra, the sun god. They, they knew that. They remembered that. And all during those 400 years, it had been a time of darkness. 
for the Israelites. That's why in the book of Exodus it says, and they cried out. Now, they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They were actually worshiping the false gods of Egypt, but they cried out, and God heard their cry and invaded the darkness. How did he do it? By sending Moses, by sending his representative. But see, they were worshiping the sun god. Listen to this. Ra is the sun god of ancient Egypt. He is one of the oldest deities in the Egyptian pantheon. Ra is the Egyptian word for sun. As a solar deity, Ra embodied the power of the sun, but it was also thought to be the sun itself. He was also associated with the creator god, Atom. And the two deities' names are used interchangeably in some versions of the creation myths. See, they have their creation myths. But their creation myths are this god who was the sun. So why does God create light without the sun? Well, I think one of the reasons is to remind the Israelites is that the sun is not a god. You may have worshipped him back in Egypt, but don't. And it's interesting that God doesn't give the, when he makes the sun in the fourth day, he doesn't give it a name because he doesn't want them to worship it. Deuteronomy 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, he, he tells the Israelites, don't ever worship the sun, don't ever worship the moon, don't ever worship the stars because they're not gods. See, that's what this is all about. The sun is not a god. Light appeared before the sun, and that light was good. So for the first three days, light shone from a source other than the sun. Thus we observe that the Bible begins with light but no sun and ends the same way. This is fascinating to me. This is why I love the Scriptures. Fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation, and night will be no more. He's talking about the end times. This is the Apostle John writing about the end times. He says, and when the end comes, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. What was that light in Genesis chapter 1, day 1? I think it's God. It's the glory of God. It's the majesty of God emanating from God himself as he invades time and space, as he enters into that realm that he is creating, and he provides light. See, man was never intended to live in the dark. He was intended to live in the light of God. But the story, guys, as it tracks out for us, and we'll see this next week and the following week, as man is placed in the garden in communion with God, living in the light that God has provided, and yet they're going to walk away from him. What what does John tell us about Jesus Christ? Or what does Jesus Christ say about himself? I am the light. What light? The light of the world. The light of this. Not just this earth, but of all things. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what this is all about. This is God invading the darkness with light, even before there's a sun, a moon, and stars. And Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It isn't going to take long as we go through the book of Genesis to find out that the people, Adam and Eve, are going to love darkness more than they love light. They're going to love their own way of doing things rather than obeying God's way of doing things. And they're going to try to hide themselves, in essence, get into the dark so that God can't see them. But see, the light's there. And we see Jesus Christ as that same light invading the darkness of first century Israel. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This theme of darkness and light is going to be all throughout 
the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation, but it hits us day one. And then it says, and God says, so there's light and there's dark. He creates the two. He separates the two. He creates these two concepts of light and dark, good and evil. And then it says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he put those things under the expanse. He separated them from the waters and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. What's going on here? What's he creating? He's basically creating the atmosphere. There, again, a lot of speculation as to exactly what's going on here. The text doesn't tell us, so it ends up being speculation. But what's he doing? He's creating an atmosphere where man can live. We need an atmosphere, right? We, we need oxygen. We need to be protected from the rays of the sun that will eventually be created day four. This has to happen. And so what happens seemingly is that God divides the deep, the waters. The earth is pretty much a watery environment until God steps in day two and he creates something. He separates this body of water, whatever it looked like, and we're not sure exactly what it looked like. But on the second day, God separated the primeval deep into two deeps with a space between. The waters below the space retain the elemental earth elements, which would be utilized on the following day to form the land and its plant cover. The waters above the firmament had apparently been transformed into a vapor state in order to be separated from the heavier materials and elevated above the atmosphere where it would serve as a thermal blanket for the earth's inhabitants. Now, again, the text doesn't tell us this, guys. This is all speculation. This is where we get the canopy theory. You, you may have heard about the canopy theory that what happened is, is that God separated the waters and he creates this vapor state and there's an atmosphere between the two, but there's this kind of a canopy of water vapor that surrounds the earth at this point in time. And it's from that source that the flood is able to take place. The water on the earth combined with the water that fell from the sky flooded the earth. Because it's going to take a lot of water to flood the earth, right? To cover up mountains and to cover up all land. So that's where the canopy theory comes from. But basically, all this is saying is that God did something incredible. God created atmosphere. There had to be oxygen for man to breathe. There had to be an environment in which he is going to live. Now, one of the things you're going to hear me keep promoting is that God is creating with an end in mind. Guess what the end in mind is? Us. Man. It's, it's not the fish, it's not the stars, it's not the galaxies, it's, it's us. And that blows me away, that God would have us as the end in mind. That's really what the book is all about. That's the, the whole point of the book to the Israelites is that God did all of this for you and for us. So what happens the next day? God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together and he called them seas and God saw that it was good. What's he do now? He creates a habitable environment for man. We needed a place to live. We can't live in the sky and we can't live in the seas. We needed land. We have to have land. And so that's what God did. And it's interesting is that the Jews feared the sea. They hated the sea. They were not a seafaring people. We, we studied the book of Joshua 
or uh, Jonah, and Jonah, it was wild that he would choose to get on a boat and go to sea because he was a Jew and feared the sea. And the idea of dying at sea was something that no Jew wanted to have happen. So they feared the sea. And the heavens were reserved for deity. So I can't go live there. I can't live here. Well, what did God do? He made this. He made the earth. He created land just for them to live in, which is interesting to think about when they're standing on the edge of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over to a new land that God has created for them, the land of Canaan. Remember, he told Abraham, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants, and they will live there in perpetuity as long as what? They remain obedient. See, land is huge, and the Jews understood that. Here's what he told Abraham. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan from, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I'm going to give you land. See, land was of great value to an Israelite. That's why they argued so much over the right of the firstborn because the firstborn got the best of the land. Land was essential. It's how they lived. It's how they made their living. It, it was important to them. It was important to God because he knew we would need it. So he makes land. Then it says that God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation. Everything happens just as God said, each according to its kind. He sees that it is good. He declares it to be good, beneficial, just as he had planned. And there's evening and morning the third day. So God not only prepares land, but he makes it inhabitable and he makes it life sustainable. He could have just made land, right? He could have made everything look like a desert, but he didn't. He made it look like a garden. He placed trees and fruit. Why? Who are those for? Man. See, everything's pointing to that. God created this environment so that it would sustain both animal and human life. They're the last things that are made, according to the book of Genesis. He's preparing all this for mankind, so that mankind could fulfill the mandate. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they got to have an earth which is able to be filled. they got to have an earth that will meet their needs, that will have fruit for them to eat and food for them, because they're not yet able to eat animals, so they've got to eat plants. They've got to eat the fruit of the trees. So all of this is, again, pointing to man. Next, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So what does he do? He now creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and it was so. God makes the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. We know what they're called now, right? The sun and the moon, but he doesn't name them. He doesn't call them anything. And I think that's a direct slam at Ra and all the other pagan gods that the Israelites know about. And he gives them a job. They're to rule over the day, over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And he sees that it's good, and it's the end of the fourth day. What did the Israelites hear? God made all this. God made the land. God made the Everywhere they look. They look at the sea of the, uh, the, the river Jordan and God made this. They look over in the land of Canaan. God made all that. They look behind them. God made that. They look up. God made that. God made it all. And God said it's good. So on day four, God's going to create 
this incredibly hospitable environment. Now, there are parts of this planet, guys, I don't want to live. Um, my brother lived in Borger, Texas for a number of years. I went there once, and I'd never go back. Um, it's the armpit of the world. There are places on this earth, not only do I not want to live, but I couldn't live. But most of this planet is highly inhabitable, hospitable, friendly to humanity. And I think what's cool is that he makes the sun and the moon in particular, and without them, we would have trouble because the sun provides the temperature we need in order to live. The moon controls the tides of the sea, right? These planets are important, these objects that God creates, but they're not gods. They're not to be worshiped. They're to remind us of our omnipotent God, this God that made it all. I ran across this. Arkin Hughes says, the slant of the earth tilted at the angle of 23 degrees gives us our seasons. If it was not tilted exactly at 23 degrees, we would not only lose our seasons, but life itself. If our moon were any closer, our tides would daily inundate whole continents. See, that's why I don't believe there's another planet like this anywhere in the universe. Just this far away with a moon, I don't think there's anything like this and there's nothing like us. It's a one of a kind. It's unique. And that should blow our minds that could God have made a billion of these planets filled with billions of people? Yes, but I don't think that's what the scriptures teach or tell us. So God makes the water and in that water, he places living creatures, birds fly above in the earth or above the earth in the sky God is creating and populating and filling this what was once a formless void, and he sees that it's good. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters, fill the skies, make more of your own, and there's evening and morning the fifth day. See, God creates aquatic life, and he he creates avian life, birds, and he fills the sky with them. I was thinking about this this week. Think about how incredible that is that in a second, and I think that's what this passage tells us, that in a second, the seas were filled. It didn't take a billion years. Could God have taken a billion years? Yeah, if he wanted to. But could God have done it all in a split second? Yes. And so immediately, the, the, the oceans were filled with fish, grown living fish with complete DNA. Birds filled the air, just popped. They popped into the sky. I don't, how did that happen? I don't know. It's just incredible to think about that God could and would do that. And then he gives them the ability to be fruitful and multiply and procreate, make more of their own. Continue this process, make more of your kind and fill your habitat, fill the oceans, fill the seas, fill the rivers, fill the sky with more of your own. And then we look at this last one in verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, and it was so. God now makes everything that's going to live on the land. And he gives us three different categories, basically. He tells us that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make terrestrial life. Man can't live in the ocean. Man can't live in the sky. I'm going to create life to live on this planet, the land dwellers, all the animals that we know about, domesticated animals, small creatures, anything that lives on this planet. And here's what's really fascinating. I think the greatest indictment against the idea of evolution is that one didn't come from the other. That's not what the Scriptures teach. And that may fly in the face of theoretic science, but 
it says he made the fish and then he made the birds and one didn't evolve from the other and we didn't evolve from them. God is sequentially making everything in its order and they're all commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And now God says, it's good. It's good, it's good. He said it six different times already, but it's not complete, right? He's not done yet. And this is why we're leaving the creation of man for next week because we want to look at it separately because at this point in time, he's made everything, the stars, the sun, the moon. He's made the earth. He's made the oceans. He's made the land. He's done this incredible thing. He's put the animals there, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, but it's incomplete. Something is missing. And the Israelites would have noticed it. As they heard this story read to them, they would have thought about Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. Listen to this. This is the words of David, King David. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What did David believe about the creation? God did it. He believed that God did all these things. What is man that you are mindful of him? When I look up at the stars and I see the galaxies and I see what God has made and I look at you, And you look at me, you probably go, man, that looks more impressive than him. And that's what David is saying. What is man that you're mindful of, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him in your own likeness. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Then he goes on and he says, all the sheep, all the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, you made it all and yet you've placed it under our domain. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, that's what the Israelites heard. That's what jumped out at them. Their God, the same God who had called them out of Egypt, now was preparing to send them into Canaan, is the same God that did all this. They needed to hear it, and guess what? So do you. So do I. Because whatever you're going to face today, you're going to have questions about the integrity, the power, the sovereignty of your God. And God wants you to know, I got it. And I got you, because I made it all. And that's why we can look up and we can see the stars, the sun, the moon. We can see the galaxies. We can look around at creation and we can be awed by it, but we should be awed by the fact that our God made it and he made it for us. So here's your questions for this morning. In what ways do all the initial phases of creation point toward the significance of mankind? And why is that significant? Why is it so important that we understand that God did all this for us? And what does that say about our importance? Not so we get cocky, but that we understand that we have value to God and we're here for a reason. Secondly, in Genesis 1, 3 through 25, it's a setup to God's creation of man. So how do you think he intended it to impact the Israelites as they stand on the edge of the promised land preparing to go in? And how should it impact us? Why would reading this creation account encourage them to go across and conquer And how should it help us go out and be victorious today in whatever we face? Finally, go back and read Psalm 8, 3 through 9 together. Why was David struck by the majesty of God while reflecting on the creation of man? Why did he put those two things together? Looking at what God has made and looking at us, how should those two things impact us? 
Well, Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, study in Genesis, and may you continue to open our eyes to see who you are, what you've done, and what you intend to do with us, your creation, the pinnacle of your creation. You've given us your son. You've redeemed us. You've restored us to a right relationship with you. You've invaded the darkness of our lives. You've placed your Holy Spirit within us, but you're not yet done with us. And you have great things you want to accomplish through us, in us. And so, Father, would you show us that in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.